Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. If you drive around the National Capital Region, then you probably have feelings when it comes to Interstate 95. More often than not, the East Coast's main highway can look and feel more like a parking lot. Quite a mess this morning. Virginia 95 northbound with 95 southbound. Miserable. Looks like a uh, flatbed truck and another vehicle uh, ran into each other, had a meeting here. But for a handful of residents in eastern Virginia, I-95 is more than just a perennial traffic jam. It's a threat to the place they call home. See, before I-95 came along, the fastest way to go up and down the Commonwealth was taking U.S. Route 301. And if you followed that two-lane highway to the Rappahannock River in Caroline County, you'd come upon the town of Port Royal, a colonial shipping port settled in 1652 and chartered in 1744. Once there, you could immerse yourself in historic sites, like the country's oldest continuously operating post office, the tavern where George Washington spent the night, even the house where John Wilkes Booth tried to take cover nine days after shooting President Abraham Lincoln. But then came the 1950s and 60s, and with them, I-95. As a result, says Lewis Malin of Preservation Virginia, the oldest statewide preservation organization in the country. This is one of the what we call bypass towns. The traffic, the center of activity, has moved away to the I-95 corridor. And while that can actually be a good thing for Port Royal... Because it keeps all of that horrible traffic out of here. Mostly, Malin says, it's pretty bad. Because it doesn't bring visitors with the opportunity to stop and see Port Royal. Consequently, many of the businesses along 301 have disappeared. A population once in the 200s has plummeted by about half. And though you'll find more original 18th century structures here than in colonial Williamsburg... Many are on the verge of collapse. That's why Preservation Virginia has just added Port Royal to its 2015 list of Virginia's most endangered historic places. What we do is react to nominations. People bring forward sites, places, buildings that are important to the history of Virginia and are threatened either from active forces or, in this case, from being bypassed. And they're no longer in the center of attention. The designation doesn't come with money, but it does encourage attention that could potentially attract tax credits, easements, and grants. Since the most endangered list began in the year 2000, Lewis Malin says 51% of the sites have survived nearly half through local efforts. And leading up the local effort here in Port Royal is Carolyn Davis. People here call me Cookie. Cookie Davis heads Historic Port Royal Incorporated, the local nonprofit that's been working to restore and preserve the town. Just this year, the group opened a museum of medicine. Which was the old doctor's office here in town, and we were able to save it by moving it from a piece of property where it was going to be burned. And when Union First Market Bank left Port Royal in 2012, taking with it roughly a third of the town's income, Davis's group turned the bank into the Port Royal Museum of American History, with local items and artifacts dating back to Native American and colonial times. You know, I always say there's good and bad and everything. Well, I miss my bank, but I love my museum. Cookie Davis's family goes back generations here. My mother's ancestors stopped in Port Royal. 1737, I think. And as she drives me around her stomping grounds... This is St. Peter's Church, which is my church. She shows me some of her family members in St. Peter's Cemetery. Those tall stones and the ones with the crosses. Almost every one of them are somebody that's kin to my mother and to me in in the end. (laughs) Davis also shows me some of the historic buildings desperate for repair. 
like the boarded-up Peyton Brockenbrow House, whose mistress turned away Abraham Lincoln's assassin in 1865. This was the most gorgeous house in the town. It's come downhill a long way. In the 50s, someone owned it that made it into apartments inside, and it's never been taken care of, and the current owner would like to sell it. We drive past the once stately Lyceum, Virginia's second oldest Masonic Lodge. It really, in its day, was something because it was a brick building and it was here. But then as the years went on, the roof sort of caved in. And we check out the similarly crumbling Fox Tavern, where George Washington stayed on several occasions before the Revolutionary War. The family that owned this started some renovation and sort of quit and uh, left it to her son, who has not been back to really do much to it. But not all of the buildings in Port Royal are falling apart. Our next stop is at a house built just this past decade, though it wasn't officially part of Port Royal until 2014. That was the year the town sextupled its acreage from roughly 80 to 480. The new boundaries will generate another sixty to $70,000 for a community that's been struggling to hold on, enabling it to apply for grants and start a rainy day fund for future improvements. One of the houses on the newly annexed land belongs to Sharon and Kent Farmer. We have been to see all the broken down houses. Now we want to see one that has a beautiful stairway. Thank you. (laughs) Sharon Farmer grew up in nearby Milford, Virginia, but she has fond memories of visiting Port Royal as a young girl to fish on the Rappahannock with her father. I remember Port Royal when it had the businesses lined Mm -hmm. up on 301 and the neon signs were flashing. Farmer volunteers with Historic Port Royal, Inc. and says she's thrilled the annexation has officially brought her into the fold. They needed the income, and I'm all for it. I thought it was a great idea. That wasn't the case for one of Port Royal's more longtime residents. Cleo Coleman founded Historic Port Royal about 20 years ago, and when she heard her 270-year-old town might be expanded... As a student of history, I was initially against that. But she says it wasn't long before she changed her tune. Uh, I'm no fool, and I soon recognized that it was necessary. Because after all, more land means more revenue for a town that's finally gaining attention as one of Virginia's most endangered historic places. Port Royal had a lot of assets, and we're trying to rebuild on those assets now. We've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. (laughs) And in time, she hopes, Port Royal's rich past will lead to an even richer future. You can see some of Port Royal's historic buildings, including the old Masonic Lodge and the house where John Wilkes Booth tried to take cover, on our website, metroconnection.org. And this weekend, Port Royal is holding its annual Independence Day celebration, featuring 18th century dance demonstrations, Civil War reenactors, even a town crier reciting the Declaration of Independence. You can find more information about that event at metroconnection.org, too. next story takes us 70-odd miles west of Port Royal to a place that's been called the fried chicken capital of the world. 
Gordonsville, Virginia, just north of Charlottesville, has a long and storied history of fried fowl dating back more than 150 years. Lauren Ober visited the town's annual Fried Chicken Festival and brings us this story on how Gordonsville landed on the culinary map. It's a scorching afternoon at the Gordonsville, Virginia fairgrounds. Inside Vincent Seal's kitchen, it's easily 10 degrees hotter. That's not just because it's a steel box on wheels. It's mainly because Seal's wife, Stephanie Terrell, has been frying up her chicken since early that morning. This is a secret recipe here. It's a dry batter. We take the chicken straight out of the pack, batter it, put it in the fryer. Okay. okay. We put all our secret, secret spices. As you see, I think people are enjoying it. Seal and Terrell are competing in the annual Gordonsville Fried Chicken Festival's Fried Chicken Cook-Off. Terrell's closely guarded recipe won the competition the past two years, and they have every intention of making this year a three-peat. Yeah, I just like chicken. It's my favorite. Stephanie has always cooked, and Gordonsville has a heritage of you know, chicken history. So we just thought that would be a good thing for us to do, and we beat around the bushes and found some good recipes here from Gordonsville, some of the elders, you know, and it, it's worked out. So it's not just that Stephanie Terrell is a good home cook. It's that she comes from a long line of Gordonsville women who made fried chicken for a living, a line stretching back more than 150 years. During the Civil War, Gordonsville was hopping. Its current mayor, Bob Coiner, says at the time the town was a main stop on two train lines, and it had three new turnpikes, making it a regional transportation hub. So all the produce in the western part of Virginia came on the turnpikes by wagon to Gordonsville to get on the trains to then go to eastern ports and cities and whatnot. So it was very important. Those trains also carried passengers. But unlike our modern rail system, those trains didn't have dining cars or climate control. Naturally, train passengers would get a little peckish during their journeys. So a group of entrepreneurial African-American women in Gordonsville came up with a solution. They would sell food to passengers from the train platform. In particular, they would make fried chicken. These women were the waiter carriers so-called because they were basically waiters who had to carry food a long way. They were often harassed. A couple of times they had their food stolen. People would take the food when they gave it through the train window, and then the train would pull off. Psyche Williams-Forsen is a professor of American studies at the University of Maryland. There is also a local folklorist and, and historian in Gordonsville who talked about at least one of the waiter carriers tracking down a customer in the neighboring county because the train had taken off and he didn't pay for his food. Williams Forsen is the author of Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food and Power. The title of her book comes from an article written by a third-generation waiter carrier who explained that her mother had built her house using profits made from selling fried chicken. Mayor Coiner, whose family goes back many generations in Gordonsville, says that degree of financial independence was rare post-emancipation. At the end of the Civil War, when we've got new freedoms for people, they're put in a position where suddenly they need jobs. Uh, you know, the situation was bad before, but you could count on the situation. And that was a big unknown. For her book, Professor Williams Forsen combed through old newspaper articles and other historical documents to find detailed histories of these women. But it was tough. There just aren't many records that illustrate what these women's lives were like. 
But what is known is that the waiter carriers and their fried chicken were sought after. Some people deliberately would chart their way through Gordonsville because they knew that they would encounter these women and, and those particular foodstuffs. After the Civil War, northern journalists traveled the South by train on goodwill tours. They documented their trip through Gordonsville in an 1873 book called The Pine and the Palm Meeting. Here's how they described their visit to the town. Upon the arrival of our special train, we were surrounded with a swarm of old and young Negroes of both sexes, carrying large servers upon their heads containing pies, cakes, chickens, boiled eggs, strawberries and cream, ripe cherries, oranges, tea and coffee, biscuit, sandwiches, fried ham and eggs, and other edibles, which they offered for sale. Given what we know or think we know about slavery and its devastating effects, the waiter carrier's entrepreneurship after emancipation seems unbelievable. These previously enslaved women had the business acumen and cooking skills to support their families through this work. I think it's important to talk about it because it reflects some level of agency that some African Americans were able to exhibit during that, that horrible institution. The Gordonsville waiter carriers continued selling fried chicken to incoming trains until the 1920s or 30s. Their disappearance was a result of a number of factors. The main one? Modernity. But as Stephanie Terrell and her award-winning fried chicken show, the waiter carrier's legacy lives on. I'm Lauren Ober. You can check out historical photos of the waiter carriers in action on our website, metroconnection.org. Everybody's talking about chicken. Chicken's a popular word. But anywhere you go, you're bound to find a chicken ain't nothing but a bird. After the break... Conventional measures haven't worked for black and brown children, so we have to think differently about what their educational program looks like if we want to have a different result. Students at a D.C. charter school defy the odds. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Coming up in just a bit, predatory towing. Why some people say tow trucks in Montgomery County, Maryland, are way too aggressive when it comes to hauling away your car. But we'll get things started in the district, where, for almost 20 years, charter schools have held a central place in the public education system. Charter schools now educate more than 40 percent of public school students in D.C., a larger share than in any American city save for New Orleans. When D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser announced her new deputy mayor for education, she nabbed the founder of one of Washington's most lauded charters, E.L. Haynes, in Ward 4. Nearly 60 percent of E.L. Haynes students are economically disadvantaged. Ninety-five percent are black or Latino. They're held to high standards and pushed into tough courses. By some measures, it's working great. One hundred percent of the first graduating class has gotten into college. Matthew Schwartz has the story on what the Haynes experience tells us about the future of education in the nation's capital. High school is hard enough when you take advanced placement classes as a senior. So imagine taking them as a freshman and then trying to get college credit. I think I took like eight or nine AP tests, and so far I've failed all of them. 
I thought I was ready for it. It just turns out I wasn't. That's Patricia Salvador. She's part of the first ever graduating class of the E.L. Haynes Public Charter School in Northwest D.C., and she isn't the only one to fail her AP tests. When E.L. Haynes opened its high school four years ago, every ninth grader sat for those tests, and every ninth grader failed. But for the school's founder, Jenny Niles, those tests served a valuable purpose. There is lots of evidence that simply taking an AP course and exposing a student to the level of rigor that they're going to need to achieve at helps them achieve higher later when they're in college. Niles, who has since taken a job as D.C. Deputy Mayor for Education, started E.L. Haynes in 2004 with the goal of eliminating the achievement gap in the U.S. The ninth graders didn't pass their AP tests that year, but that wasn't the point of the exercise. The sense of self-confidence they came out with by saying, I'm a ninth grader and I just took an AP exam and it was really hard, but I got some of it right, was actually what we were shooting for. Duanjay Stowes came to E.L. Haynes in the seventh grade. What's it like being the first graduating class? Um, can I say it's been hell? Yeah, you can say it. Okay. <laughs> it's like, since the seventh grade, we have been guinea pigs all. E.L. Haynes administrators have walked a delicate balance. They want to challenge their students without making things so hard that they discourage them. It's a learning experience for teachers as much as it is for the students. We're trying some interesting things. We're not quite sure if it's going to work, but one thing that we're not willing to negotiate on is the mission of college readiness. That's Caroline Hill, founding principal of E.L. Haynes High School. My goal and my strategy was expose students to the most rigor that they can see. I, I firmly believe like you don't know what you can handle until you experience it. That means throwing students into advanced classes, in many cases without much preparation. You could have five preps and I could create a general chemistry and an honors chemistry and an AP chemistry, or we can have one. Conventional measures haven't worked for black and brown children, right? They haven't worked. So we have to think differently about what their educational program looks like if we want to have a different result. Creating a high school brought big challenges. E.L. Haynes went from a class of 50 eighth graders to 121 ninth graders. Those new students came from all over the city and nearly 40 of them quickly transferred out. This school can be pretty tough for students who haven't grown up with the rigorous philosophy. If you're not on it the way you need to be on it, you're going to fail. You're going to fail, and a lot of people had a hard time. Um, our ninth grade and tenth grade year, like, figuring that out. Duanja grew up in Ward 7. She had been attending a school in the southeast. Was it a big shock? Yeah, because I was so used to, you know, teachers not caring and, you know, doing what I want and, you know, watching fights every day, you know. Southeast D.C. public school system. It was tough before I came to E.L. Haynes. Um, and then when I got here, the teachers were, like, happy. And I was like, teachers, happy? I've never seen this before. Here I learned that I was actually smart because at public schools, you know, I didn't really know. But here when I got here, I was like, oh, my God, I, I can do this. And then my other friends who were still in public schools, it's like, bro, what is that? But, yeah. Thanks, Mom. Duanji was accepted to nine colleges, was offered $150,000 in scholarships, and is going to George Mason University in the fall. Patricia, the one who failed nine AP tests, became co-valedictorian. She's headed to Goucher College. The college acceptance rate among E.L. Haynes graduates is 100%, but not everyone has graduated yet. Of the 78 students in the class of 2015, 
25 of them aren't graduating. But that's okay with Principal Hill, who preaches a competency-based model of education that cares more about mastery of the subject and less about how long that mastery takes. We want to make sure that learning is the constant and time is the variable and giving every kid what they need to achieve that mission. If that means it takes the students five or even six years to graduate, that's okay as long as they're ready to go to college. As the top education official in the district, Jenny Niles says she hopes to apply the lessons of E.L. Haynes throughout the city. We need to shift the way we think about it, given who our high school students are in D.C., so that we can start creating institutions that meet our students where they are, rather than expecting our students to meet the institutions where they are. Six months after Niles left the school she founded to take on education challenges district-wide, she was back in front of the students she had watched grow up in front of people she thinks of as family, giving them a final send-off into the world she helped prepare them for. My last message is, we love you. We will always be here for you. We will always believe in you. We will always take pride in you. And we will always remember you. I'm Matthew Schwartz. a time for joy, a time for tears, a time we'll treasure through the years. Graduation day. We turn now from the district's younger residents to those in their golden years. These days, we hear a lot about all the millennials flooding into D.C., but the population of seniors is growing, too. And it has been continuously since 1950. People 65 and over now make up about 12 percent of city residents. And as the baby boom generation matures, the D.C. Office on Aging expects this percentage to increase exponentially over the next decade. But as Armando Truel tells us, about a quarter of seniors in D.C. are living in poverty, and some aren't getting the help they need. A driver with Catholic Services is delivering two freshly prepared meals to 73-year-old Cora Ham at her small apartment in Southeast. Cora has been getting these deliveries for more than a year and a half. Mister, it is so important. I don't have the strength to get up and cook. Cora is about five feet tall, very thin and frail, and slowly shuffles to her seat after letting me into her pristine apartment. What a lovely home you've got. Lovely. Yeah. Got to be cleaning up in here. How are you feeling? Not too good. Can't do too much for myself. Cora has stopped going out to get groceries or to eat and socialize at a nearby senior center. I don't have anybody to take me nowhere. And the last time I was on the bus, it was too much of chaos. The young boy wanted to mess Cora with me. became a widow a few years ago. We got married in 1968 and never left each other, always was with each other until the day he the died. The Hams had no children of their own. Cora's relatives are in South Carolina. So it's just her and her two cats, a friendly black and white kitty and a not-so-friendly tabby. She is bossy. <laughs> She's the boss. Oh, really? Me. You're not the boss? Mm-mm. No, she is. Not in me. Ward 8 alone, there are more than 300 seniors like Cora, 
getting meals delivered at home, but the city isn't keeping up with the need. We know that as the senior population has grown, that the need for home delivered meals has also Ronaldo Washington is with Family Matters, a nonprofit that works with the district office on aging. He says in Ward 8, there are 60 seniors who qualify for the program but aren't getting deliveries. Is there now enough food to give it to them? Currently, Washington no. says DCOA doesn't appear to have enough money in its budget to add more seniors to its home-delivered meals programs anywhere in the district. We know that the senior population is growing. We know that the need is there while the money is DCOA not there. says that new enrollments for the home food delivery program are on temporary hold, but an additional $200,000 has been secured for next fiscal year. The agency says eligible seniors can access other food sources, such as free vouchers for grocery stores and farmer's markets, as well as free lunches at 52 centers. The catch-22 is many of the seniors who were eligible for home meal delivery can't access those other options, which is precisely why they qualify for home meal delivery. Hunger is a huge issue, huge issue, and it's one that we can never let go Sally of. Sally White co-chairs the district's Senior Advisory Coalition, an umbrella group of organizations serving the elderly. A report published a few months back ranked the district fourth in food insecurity among the elderly, finding one in five seniors here were concerned about eating enough food or the right type of food. White explains it's not just seniors living on poverty-level incomes who are at risk. Somebody may not be able to get to the grocery store and that's why they don't have food. Or they may be alone and they have no motivation to cook for themselves anymore. So there's a lot of challenges that are intertwined with economics but not solely dependent on the DCOA economics. DCOA officials say they've convened a nutrition task force to make sure seniors with food insecurity don't go hungry but the amount of resources spent on the elderly is tiny compared to other budget items. One example, DCOA spends $44 million on elderly services. The district public school system spends $877 million. There are twice as many seniors living in the district than students enrolled in DC public schools. DCOA officials admit the budget allocated to their office has not grown much over time even as the city's population of seniors has. I'm Armando Truel. Viral videos come and go. After all, some viruses live longer than others. But you may still remember this viral video, which came on the scene earlier this year. Do you feel good about your job? That's ESPN reporter Britt McHenry chewing out an attendant after her car was towed in Arlington, Virginia. Lose some weight, baby girl. It was vicious and catty and earned McHenry a brief suspension from the sports network. But many viewers could relate to her anger. For years now, people in Montgomery County, Maryland, have been fighting what they call predatory towing. But the city council's attempts to stop the practice have been met with new tactics by towing companies. So, as Maryland reporter Matt Bush tells us, lawmakers are trying again. The Connor Building in downtown Bethesda has restaurants and offices. It also has a parking lot, one that is notorious for towing. 
When the county last tried to combat predatory towing, it was sparked by the complaints of what was happening here. Tow trucks would sit in a county-owned parking garage across the street and watch for people walking off the lot. The county then banned tow trucks from waiting in garages it owns. Predatory towing is the number one consumer complaint in our county. Roger Berliner represents Bethesda on the Montgomery County Council, and he's behind the latest crackdown effort. Everybody has been touched by predatory towing, and it's not okay. Once tow trucks were banned from sitting in the garage, they responded by using spotters. Berliner says they stand at the lots and monitor whether anyone parks where they aren't supposed to. The spotter then radios into the tow truck to come remove the vehicle. This is out of control, and people get out of control when their cars get towed. There are a lot of ugly incidents. So you've lost $140, $160. You have to travel to some place that you really don't want to go to. Uh, you feel like you have had your property stolen. Steve Eisen told the county council of his own ugly incident, which occurred in February at the Kensington Shopping Center. After shopping at two stores in the center, he walked off the lot to put a letter in a mailbox. In a matter of a few minutes, his car was towed. Two nearby spotters in the shopping center came over and I asked them to get my car. One laughed at me and said, no way, you're tough luck, can't you read signs? I blew up angrily and asked, what signs? Eisen's story touches on just about every issue, including clear signage, the ability to quickly retrieve a vehicle, and the use of spotters. Roger Berliner wants to end spotters. His bill would give the county's Office of Consumer Protection subpoena powers so they can find out if towing companies are employing spotters. We will have access to their records, and this bill says you can't be paying people to do that kind of work. Business owners are split on the matter. While towing can drive away customers, so can tight parking, says Matthew Palmer, who has a parking lot for his business in Bethesda. I tell them we have parking. They arrive, all my parking's taken by somebody who's there for just a few minutes, and they move on to the next business. They don't, they don't come in. Every time that happens, I lose that customer. I lose that future business from that customer, and I lose potential referrals from that customer. Eric Friedman, the head of the county's Consumer Protection Office, says many property owners do not authorize all specific tows, leaving the towing companies with far too much power. These towing companies are operating on patrol in their mind where they just run around the county and if they see what they think is a violation, they grab it and they hold it hostage. Friedman applauds a provision in the bill that makes property owners authorize all tows between the hours of 2 a.m. and 9 a.m. Those owners flooded the council with complaints over that specific requirement, saying it will take the teeth out of their parking enforcement. Tow truck drivers like Jason Bradford, they don't like it either. I have a lot of lots that I monitor. I look for parking permits. I look on the floor, you know what I mean? I do a very thorough job looking for these things. You know, this is gonna hurt me. You're gonna, you're gonna literally put me out of my house if you, if you enact some of these things here. The council is expected to take a final vote on the bill later this month. I'm Matt Bush. Well, sometimes I feel like I'm driving my life away Sometimes I feel Like I'm driving my life away In a minute Is it dangerous where you live? Do you, do you hear a lot of explosions near your city? A new interactive art exhibit takes you to Afghanistan, Iran, and Cuba without leaving D.C. That's just ahead as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5.
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. We'll kick off this part of the show with a shave and a haircut as we continue our series, Clips. It's our ongoing exploration of D.C.'s barbershops in partnership with Elevation D.C., a weekly online magazine about what's next for the city. This time we have a special treat, especially if you tend to tune to WAMU 88.5 weekdays at noon. That is when you'll hear the familiar saxophone riff and, of course, the voice. From WAMU at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show. Every other Friday, after our beloved talk show host has left his chair in the WAMU studio, you'll find him in a different chair completely. A barber chair at J&C Barbershop, owned by John Minor. Should I wait till your face is done getting shaved before I make you talk? No, you can, I can talk. <laughs> I mostly listen, John. No, you don't. <laughs> As you maybe can tell, Kojo and John have known each other a while now, about 25 years. When I started coming to the barbershop, John was the youngest barber. Are you saying that he's no longer the youngest barber? <laughs> Situation's completely reversed now. It's like the exact opposite. <laughs> John opened J&C on Georgia Avenue Northwest in 1989 or 1990, years before the Petworth Metro Station was built just up the street. He was in his 30s and had been working for a barber named Corrine Young. When the building changed ownership, Corrine lost the shop and asked John to find a space they could run together. She lent John cash to rent a spot on Georgia Avenue, and voila, J&C was born. So why J&C, you may ask? I used her name as Corrine and put the seal on the window. Now, as for how Kojo Namdi got there, well, he says it had everything to do with the woman behind that C. I started coming to this barbershop because somebody told me that there was a woman named Miss Young who was very good at cutting hair. So I came to Miss Young, she was an older woman, and I had two young sons, twins, and so we all came to the barbershop at the same time and Miss Young cut all of our hair. When I, when I opened in this area, I was the only one in this block. And it was four black churches in this block, little neighborhood churches, little, um, I guess, you know, tap the tambourine churches. Um, since that time, um, they've gotten hair salons, grocery stores, full-service restaurants. And there are different ethnic groups in this block. El Salvadorian, Mexican, black, African, they're all diversified in this block. There are a lot more condos, higher-rise buildings than there used to be. However, there are also a lot more drinking and eating establishments, places where people can hang out. One of the attractions, I suspect, with this neighborhood is because it's so close to a metro stop, and so people tend to build around metro stops. But once people move in, then stores, restaurants, etc., follow them. And there obviously is going to be some tension. Gentrification always brings a level of tension with it. And this area is now in the middle of gentrification and all of the accompanying tensions. Right now, they said in parking spaces across the street for $35,000. That was unheard of. They built a condominium over there, and it was unheard of to have a parking space to cost $35,000. It used to be easy to park here, but now that you have more businesses, more traffic, you get more people. We have more walk-ins now because the neighborhood has more traffic, obviously. Before, we had people who lived in the neighborhood, but they're gone. Some come back, so we have a lot more walk-ins. I worry 
about how long they'll be able to hold on. Because as property values go up, as you see, they're renovating in this barbershop right now. And I say to John, what happens if the landlord at some point decides, oh, I want to sell just after you've done all this renovation? He says, well, I hope that won't happen. But these are the things you tend to worry about because there are cultural aspects to places like this that cause this neighborhood and have caused this neighborhood to be vibrant for a long time. And even as the neighborhood changes, you want those cultural aspects to remain because in a lot of respects, they identify the neighborhoods. You find bonds between people, people meet each other here. Or I had a couple that got married in here, met each other in here and got married. And they're still married to this day. You get to know the inner stories about people. For some reason, they get relaxed when they get their hair cut. They would let their guard down and they feel comfortable and they start telling you stories. I've heard about broken marriages, cheating spouses, um, changing sexual identities. I've heard all the stories. They'll tell you everything that's on their mind. So this is what they do. There are barbershops that are probably closer to my neighborhood than this one is. But when you find a barbershop and it works for you, it doesn't matter how far away you move. Once you're in the same city, you're going to that same barbershop because the barbershop you come to for more than the barbers is the environment in the barbershop that you like. You don't want to have to go and break in a whole new barbershop. You've already gotten this one broken in. This is where you're going to stay. <laughs> that was WAMU's Kojo Namdi and barber John Minor at JNC Barbershop in Parkview. You can see John Minor giving a shave and a haircut and Kojo Namdi getting one on our website. We also have a link to Elevation DC's write-up of JNC. Find it all at metroconnection.org. And as we continue our series on DC's barbershops, we want to hear from you. At last count, Washington boasted 112 licensed shops. So if you have a favorite, email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. Your hair good is as short as mine. We'll head now from the barber's chair to a shipping container, but not any sort of shipping container you'd probably expect. No, this one contains video, audio, and the internet. It's called The Portal, and it's part of a global art project designed to bring people in the U.S. face-to-face, if you will, with strangers in Afghanistan, Iran, and Cuba. Lauren Landau made brief visits to all three countries, but left her passport at home. It's bright outside, the kind of day that leaves you searching for shade. But inside the portal, it's dark and cool. When the door closes behind me, I'm left alone in the space. Well, not entirely alone. A young man is standing in front of me. But civil engineering student Wahid Rasuli's feet are planted thousands of miles away. I'm uh, 21 years old, and I'm living in Herat, one of the provinces of the Afghanistan in the West. And uh, I'm very glad that uh, you are here and I can speak with you. The camera is placed just to the left of Wahid's right eye, so I'm looking at him head on. This isn't like the video chats I'm accustomed to. I can see his whole body, life-sized, and my face isn't floating in a corner, stealing my attention. So when you go on the portal, you look at another human being and they look at you, and uh, it's not as if they're looking below the camera, for example. That's Amar Bakshi. He created Shared Studios, an arts design and technology collective. Portals is one of his three major initiatives. The idea is to get people in a space where they can meet others across great distances, 
but feel like they're in the same room. Being full body tells you a lot about a person. People sway, they fidget, they play with their pockets, they turn their bodies around. It is very revealing. People have described it as like feeling quite naked. You can't hide under a table. To get the conversation rolling, visitors receive a prompt. They might ask the question, what is your most treasured memory? Or what would make today a good day for you? I try it out on my new friend, Wahid Rasuli. Uh, a good day for me is uh, when I hear that there is no bombing, there is no attacking. Is it dangerous where you live? Do you, do you hear a lot of explosions near your city? Uh, yes, uh, the danger is always around us, but just uh, we are continuing our life here. The idea for these sorts of conversations was born early last year, when Amar Bakshi pitched the idea for portals to his friend and former colleague, Michelle Mokhtadar. They had worked together as reporters, and Mokhtadar was covering Iran at the time for Reuters. An Iranian-American, she found that people in both countries often had questions for her about the other place. So, she thought, why not remove the middleman? Or woman. Iran is often seen as the land of impossibility. It's impossible to do things there. But I had traveled there quite a bit and uh, I started asking people and about the art scene there. The art scene is booming. There's hundreds of galleries in Tehran alone. And I realized that this project was definitely doable there. Portals launched in December, connecting Tehran to New York via a gallery in Manhattan's Lower East Side. We had about 1,500 people that participated in total, including 26 artist collaborations. So 13 artists in the U.S., 13 artists in Iran, from musicians to filmmakers to performance artists, collaborated to make joint pieces together. People started reaching out, asking to bring the portal to South Africa, Monaco, China. Mokhtadar quit her job and became the director of global development for Shared Studios. She and Bakshi set their eyes on D.C. I had some hesitations. I was like, would this art project work in D.C.? Is it, is it, are people going to get it? In New York, people got it. But she says D.C. is more conservative. Still, they gave it a try. Back in April, they brought the portal to Georgetown University. That was a small-scale operation. Last month, they set up shop just outside the Ronald Reagan Building and International Trade Center's doors. Here at the Woodrow Wilson Plaza, many people have been coming. You know, we have a wait list of 200 people. They get it. You know, it's an international city. They know about all these places. People here are so educated about about Iran, about Afghanistan, and they're drafting policies on these places. People dish about love, ambitions, even the weather. Kristen Petamonti is a professional storyteller. She came to the portal on multiple occasions to chat with people in Cuba, Iran, and Afghanistan. The one in uh, Herat, we were talking about doing very similar work of building bridges between culture. The guy in Havana, it turned out we both love the red hot chili peppers. Then the one in Tehran is a violinist, so we were talking about the arts. There are sometimes hiccups in these conversations, though. Mokhtadar says each day and each country pose their own challenges. In Iran, the bandwidth has been super slow. Havana, when it rains, the internet gets really bad. So each day, it's like an art of logistics. Sometimes Skype works, sometimes Zoom works, sometimes Google Hangout works. For example, in Cuba, Skype is blocked. The team at Shared Studios also needs to find places to keep the 10 by 20 foot shipping container. It can be outside. It just needs an ethernet connection and electricity. I've been walking around the streets of D.C. looking for empty lots, and I found many. I'm just not sure who owns them. I'm not sure, you know, I'm just trying to kind of figure that out. They've booked a few temporary spots. In September, the portal will spend a few days at the Clarice Smith Performing Arts Center at the University of Maryland. 
The ultimate goal is to create a permanent network of interconnected portals in cities all over the world. Amar Bakshi says they also want to build a mobile unit that can drive around the country, hitting rural communities along the way. Because the power of this is when it is in West Virginia and in Herat, and not just in, you know, D.C. and New York. He says the shipping containers could be used in a number of ways. But first they need to figure out where to put them. I'm Lauren Landau. We'll close today's show with our monthly look at the region's literary life in a segment we call Bookend. Getting kids to open up about or even just identify their feelings can be tough. A good book can help. And that's where an author like Mary Amato comes in. The Silver Spring resident has penned 15 books for children of all ages, many of which help kids deal with emotions they might be facing for the very first time. Jonathan Wilson met Amato in her writing studio at home to discuss how she creates stories for and about children and how she got her start. I mean, are you one of those people who, from a very early age, knew, you know, I'm going to be an author, I'm, this is what I'm going to do? Or did you stumble into writing books and, and then more specifically books for children? Well, when I was very young, I had a, an important experience that really turned me into a writer. First of all, um, my mother gave me a little steno pad when we were going on a trip to California in the car from Illinois, and she said something really important. She said, write down what you see and you'll never forget it. And I was a second grader at the time, and I took it very seriously and thought that what I was doing was recording something for all history. And... I really got a lot out of that. It made me see the world in a, in a more intentional and special way. So um, I began writing at that early age and seeing how uh, beneficial it was. And then when I was 10, my mother died. And this very heavy silence descended over our house. And I was given the the unspoken message that you really shouldn't talk about your feelings, you really shouldn't express your feelings. And so for a long time, I just kept all of my emotions inside of me. And then when I got to be a fifth grader, I came home from school one day and I picked up this little notebook and I started to write in it. I had come home from school, I had had a really bad day, and I took this little notebook to my bedroom. And as I wrote, this chill went up my spine because I realized that what I was writing was real. It was honest. I was describing how I felt for the first time. And I got completely hooked. And I never stopped Writing. You know, when a lot of people talk about wanting to become a writer, having these ambitions, we think of these huge names like Faulkner and Hemingway. And yet, it's children's book authors that have the most impact on a lot of people's lives. When did you realize that that's what I want to do? I think that most of us as children were strongly influenced by certain books. And for me, there was Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh which was a very brave story. There was Little Women by Louise May Alcott, um, The Once and Future King by T.H. White. And um, when I read those books, I was overcome with this feeling that, oh, I want to do that. I want to write those books. 
But I grew up in a uh, very small town. There were no writers that I knew of. I believed that all books that were on my library shelves had been written by people who had already died. There weren't bookstores. There wasn't this phenomenon of, um, oh, everybody rushing out to get the next Harry Potter book. That just didn't exist. So I didn't believe that it was possible to become a writer. It took me a long time to allow that dream to emerge. So it wasn't until I was all grown up that I started to really write and I knew immediately that I wanted to write for children because those were the books that had the most power for me. You mentioned you had a very powerful experience with your mother dying at the age of 10 and, and thinking about you know trying to express your feelings. It always strikes me that writing for the middle school ages and the teenage ages would be so incredibly challenging because kids are maturing at different ages, you don't know what parents are comfortable talking about, all these new feelings are coming out. Are you ever daunted by that when you're writing for those ages? Those are the times in our lives when we are facing huge changes. We're figuring out who we are. We're figuring out what the meaning of life is. Um, we're facing the notion for the first time that you know there is such a thing as death and sorrow and and uh, sadness. And so those kinds of topics, I think, are what draw most writers of children's literature to the genre because it's big stuff. I think a lot of people believe that children's literature is somehow um, an inferior genre and it's the topics are are often the biggest topics that there are. And I think that the whole notion of going to those emotional places, that notion is the thing that keeps me going. That was children's book author Mary Amato speaking with Jonathan Wilson. By the way, Amato doubles as a musician, and her latest young adult works come complete with soundtracks. You can hear Amato perform a song from her novel Get Happy on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.